and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food facts series, which are short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer-turned-nutritionist, and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. The health and nutrition space can be a confusing one where information and misinformation mingle, and untangling fact from fiction and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will quickly acknowledge that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. This week, I have what I think is a very interesting episode for you. I'm here with David Richman, and David has a diverse range of roles, including he's an author, he's an athlete, a consultant, and a motivational speaker. Today, we're going to discuss his amazing project, Cycle of Lives. David rode his bike 5,000 miles, that's more than 8,000 kilometers, across the US from LA to New York to raise funds in honor of his sister, June, who died of brain cancer. He documented his journey in his book, which is also called Cycle of Lives. And in that book, he interviewed 15 people across the US whose lives had been irrevocably changed by cancer, and they're either patients, survivors, loved ones, or caregivers. And during his epic bike ride, he met up with some of those people. To give the interview some context, it's helpful to know a little bit about cancer in Australia, It is one of the major causes of illness here and has far-reaching impacts on the individuals who suffer from it, obviously, but also their families, friends and carers. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in 2021, 150,800 cases of cancer were expected to be diagnosed. That is approximately 413 diagnoses each day. It was also expected that in 2021, 49,200 people would die from cancer. The six most common cancers in Australia in 2021, in order of incidence, were first breast, then prostate, melanoma of the skin, colorectal, lung, and number six, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I imagine that it's almost impossible to get to adulthood and not have your life touched by cancer in some way. It is my great pleasure to be speaking with David Richmond today about his moving project, Cycle of Lives. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fantastic, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on Vibrant Lives podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. And I'd like to start, David, with some quickfire questions just to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as an author, an athlete, and a motivational speaker just some of the things that you do. So, David, where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California 
in an area not too par- far from the greater Los Angeles area is where I grew up. Right. But I, I, I like to say I really grew up in Las Vegas because when I was uh, 18, I went off into the world and was heading to all the different universities that I had been accepted at. And when I got off uh, the freeway in Las Vegas, my car broke down. And oh. I ended up I ended up staying there for five years. And if you're 18 and living in Vegas for five years, that's where you're going to do your growing up. Wow, that sounds fun. <laughs> um, your favorite form of exercise? Uh, it's really a toss up between biking and running. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, I love running, um, but I also love biking too. So I, it's really tough. I'd say it's a toss up between the yeah. two. Oh, I, yeah, I get that. And uh, your go-to meal for dinner? My go-to meal for dinner is probably chicken and veggies. Probably yeah, a some of, chicken. A lot of athletes say that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of roasted chicken, barbecue chicken, and roasted veggies. Throw in some rice, and I'm pretty happy. Yeah, yeah, nice and easy. And what are you currently reading uh, well, you know, I, um, I do, I'm, I'm training for, for, for Ironman still. So I do, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm out there a lot of hours and I love listening to audibles Yeah, and I kind of, uh, to keep my attention, I rotate between books. So I'm, I'm reading, listening to yeah. basically three books right now. Uh, one is a book, I think it's called life of gratitude. It's about a woman who, um, talks about her um journey uh overcoming stage four colon cancer pretty interesting book the other book is uh, a really fascinating book um, about the greek gods and i'm listening to that and then also there's a really famous book on writing called um down to the bones came out about 30 years ago real famous uh author and teacher and writer as well and um, and she she wrote a book called Writing Down the Bones, right. and it's a great, great book on writing. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, there's a lot to keep you occupied <laughs> amongst <laughs> those three books. And yeah, for sure. David, your favorite holiday destination? Oh, boy, we were just talking about how beautiful your country is, but I've only been there once, so I can't say it's my favorite because I don't go back over and over close to us is Mexico. I've been to Mexico probably a ton. So I love the Latin American culture. I love yeah. the food, the people, the the heat. Um, I, I'd have to I'd have to say it's anywhere in Mexico. Excellent. Have you done any racing over in Mexico? I, I you know what I did do a race. Uh, it wasn't a race. It was a solo event. I did an 87 mile solo run. Wow. In Mexico, in the heat of the summer, from a city called Cancun to mm-hmm. another city called Tulum. Nice. And I ran on the highway by myself just as a fundraiser. And uh, yeah, that was that was crazy. Wow. That would have been very interesting. Maybe the topic of a different podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, right? so today we're going to discuss your extraordinary project and your book, Cycle of Lives, which mm-hmm. I've read. But before we dive into that, I'd like to set the scene to understand what motivated you to take on such an epic project. So when you're not riding your bike across the US, and we'll get into that a bit more, (laughs) what is your day job? 
I, uh, well, I'm in finance. Uh, basically, I manage the people that manage people's money. So okay, if you can think of it that way, I, and yeah. I've done that for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and fortunately, I'm at a point in my career where, where my day job doesn't take up a majority of my time. So I do have uh, most of my time is spent writing, uh, doing podcasts, um, coaching, writing, uh, doing uh, speaking, both in the in the endurance fitness area, yeah. some business uh, speaking, and then obviously a lot of speaking on on this book in particular to the cancer community. Wow, that sounds great. Very varied and interesting. And you've managed to live what you want to do, really, from the sounds of it. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying. We don't always have a choice over all of our time. But you know what? Um, you know, this. There's, you got to seize the day, right? Tomorrow oh, might absolutely. might not happen. So you just got, you yeah. got to figure, you got to figure out, uh, even if I can only do it half time, if it's what I want to do, I'll do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you do have a background in endurance sports mm -hmm. and you've competed in 50 triathlons, including yep. at, at least I think 15 Ironmans and countless ultra marathons. Um, and for people that don't know, that is any distance greater than a marathon. So what's endurance sport brought to your life? <laughs> uh, it's brought in uh, a, a lot, Amanda. Um, it brought me um, a lot of peace because when you um, when you're constantly busy and I was a, you know overly busy, stressed out, um, I didn't really pay attention to the problems in my life because I got so I kept myself so busy. I never had mm. to. Yeah. Um, endurance athletics, if it does one thing um, besides getting you in shape and having you accomplish goals, what it does is it gives you plenty of time to think. And um, I probably have done the most self-care and self-healing and self-growth in doing endurance athletics because like i said i mean if you meditate for 15 minutes it's great if you go do yoga for an hour that's great if you go on a morning walk or drink your coffee in the backyard or whatever it is that you do yeah. to kind of get your head straight that's one mm -hmm. thing but when you got 12 hours in the desert or you're on your bike for you know 24 hour period or something i mean you get to go deep into your thoughts and yeah. and for me it was it uh, endurance athletics had been a very, very healing place yeah, look, I, I could not agree more. That's one of the things I, not that I do anything as extreme as what you do, but I do love, I do love being in that, that space where it's just you in your head and there's nothing to distract you, really. So the purpose of the Cycle for Lives project was, is, was bigger than simply completing an epic physical feat. It was to fundraise for cancer research and care. And we will go into all of that, but before we do... Cancer profoundly impacted your life through the death of your sister, June, from brain cancer in 2007, when she was only 46. So tell us about June. Oh, that's nice of you. Ah, boy, what do I could tell you about June? Um, she, we were very close in age. Uh, we were only about uh, 14, 15 months apart, 14 oh, or 15 wow. months apart. So mm -hmm. very close in age, um, had the same kind of screwed up childhood uh, so we had that in common and often would uh, find comfort in being the one that knew that that's what the other one had right yeah. because you just 
a lot of times you just never know. Uh, even siblings that are far apart in age, their experiences are very, very different. Mm. Um, and what they remember and, and, and maybe what, what happened to them or how they dealt with their childhood. Um, she grew up, but she, she grew up a lot more uh, sane than me, a lot more stable. Uh, she found somebody early in life to love. They were married, um, had two kids. Uh, she got sick when they were young. Her kids were very young. And unfortunately, um, she passed away when I think when when the kids were like 11 and 14, something like that. So, so still pretty young Yeah. and a great husband a great circle of friends, really, really a, a life of the party. Everybody loved mm. her. Mm. Um, you know, really sweet girl, a little flaky. She, she could be flaky. That's that's for sure. Uh, you know, um, sometimes we went a while without seeing each other. But if you got her attention, uh, she felt she made you kind of feel like you're the only one in the room. So she's a really wonderful woman. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad for you and for her family. My dearest friend died nine years ago, leaving uh, from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, leaving three young children. So mm. I've seen it. It's just it's really just so sad it's really tragic you know yeah. and she, she said to me one time amanda she said you know the thing that sucks the most about dying is i won't be able to watch them grow up yeah I and know. i could imagine after giving birth how that must feel to someone who gets to have that thought like right people get snatched away all the time but when you can contemplate that thought it is uh another layer of you know kind of tragic for for the person because you know that's what they're that's what drives them is they want to see their kids grow up. Yeah, of course. Know? I think that's a natural feeling for any parent. Yeah. yeah. So onto the, the ride itself. So you set mm -hmm. yourself what I would call an audacious goal of riding 5,000 miles. And for people here in Australia, that is over 8,000 kilometers across America. Can you briefly outline your route to us? Where did you start? Which coast? Yeah. And where did you finish? Well, you know what? It would be a lot easier. I was when I was in Australia, I was reading a story about this doctor that was trying to bring attention to childhood obesity in Australia and he circumvented Australia. Oh, yes. I saw running. him on the news. Yes. In a yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. That that would be easy to explain. But if you don't know America, basically if you look at the left side, bottom left, it's California. Yeah. And then I zigzagged my way to Florida which is where all the wackos in the United States live. And then I made my <laughs> way halfway down Florida and across Florida. And then I zigzagged my way all the way up the coast to New York city. Wow. So yeah, I, I did it in a zigzag way because I wanted to meet the people uh, that I've been talking to. Yes. Fantastic. So you plotted your route based on where those people were. Yeah. And yeah. also where a couple of hospitals and cancer centers oh, were that I wanted to yeah. visit and that type yeah. of stuff. But yeah, I couldn't meet everyone because they were too spread out. But yes. um, but that was the most direct route I could take to see the most people. Wow. And how many days did it take you to do that? Well, I originally uh, was going to take eight weeks, but then something came up and I had to shorten it to six weeks. So I had 45 days to do the 48, uh, 4,700 miles. So oh for any cycling fans out there, basically I did two Tour de France's back to back with a little bit more climbing and a little bit more distance. Oh my goodness. That, yeah. That's extraordinary. Did were any of those days rest days or did you just go solid for 45 I did. days? I, I planned three rest days. 
And then I had one um, unfortunate rest day from a hurricane. I, I oh, was trapped yeah. in a hotel in the middle of a hurricane and it, it would have been terribly unsafe to continue. Yeah. And so I had to wait for the hurricane to go. So I took four days off in the 45 days. So I actually did 41 days of cycling to cover, you know, over 8,000 K, which is a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of cycling. Yeah, it sure is. So how, <laughs> how on earth did you train for that? Uh, you know, I think you got to train your mind more than your body. And because I, I don't know how you train for that. I, I, yeah. I just don't. I'm, I'm not I'm not like a full time endurance athlete. And when people do things like climb Mount Everest or that doctor that ran around, you know, circumvented Australia. I mean, when you're doing those, I don't know that there is any training yeah. that you can do, because I think the best way to train for a, for a 8000 K bike ride is to do an 8000 K bike ride. Yeah, <laughs> I think you got to you got to train your mind. You got to know what you're getting into because it's hard it, and it hurts. And you, I mean, you're obviously very fit anyway, so you're starting from that base. Yeah. Um, so you do, you said it hurt, you do touch on some of the physical difficulties you face, such as um, sore muscles and chafing, and I believe you had a rash <laughs> down the back of your legs caused by the irritation from all the, the sweat. Yeah. So how did you manage to keep going when you were in so much pain? Uh it's p part of it is a commitment, mm -hmm. right? I had a commitment. Um, so I had asked, um, the team had asked like all these different hotels along the way, if we could have a free room, since we were doing something for charity, yeah. can we have a free room? And um, luckily all the rooms got donated, which was really nice, but all, all on a specific night. And so I had planned it out ahead of time. If I didn't keep going, I was going to miss one. And then you'd have a domino effect yeah, and all the rest would be set off. So one is commitment. I'm um, two. Uh, really, Amanda, you know this from from doing half Ironmans. Once you tell your friends you're going to do it, you kind of don't want to not do it, right? Yeah, you, you, absolutely. You, you don't want to fail, um, and 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 you don't want to be a fraud, and you, you know all of these things. So I, I guess I didn't want to fail. That was another thing. And then I think third is uh, I felt a, a some responsibility because. I had told the book participants, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And this is part of the project. And by the way, I'm talking to them about, as you know, really deeply difficult, personal, hard things. So as soon as I get something hard, what am I going to do? Back off. So I, I couldn't do that either. So I, I definitely had responsibility for what I had set out to do. So I, I, I kind of had to live up to that, you know? Yeah. And as you said earlier, it's more a mental um, game probably than even though you're in physical pain, it's it's your mind that makes you keep going, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It really is. I Sometimes mean, to your detriment, but still. Yes, yes. So I'm just curious, did you eat mountains of food? Mountains. So calories, right? I don't know if, if, if calories are universal around the world, but calories, a normal human being takes in like 2,500 calories a day. Um, athletes, if you're being you know pretty athletic, you're going to take in 3,500, 4,000, 5,000 calories a day. I was having a difficult time eating, uh, during the day because yeah. of the heat, it was extremely hot. Um, and my stomach kind of wasn't able to process stuff, but I was probably taking in between six and 8,000 calories a day, which is like basically the equivalent of like nine meals a day. Wow. Right. So it, and it wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, that's that's extraordinary, isn't? It? I mean, that's another. When you're reading about your journey, you you didn't talk about that a lot about the food, but that's another sort of piece of the puzzle of the whole thing, isn't it? You, it's not just the actual ride; it's all the planning that goes into it, and how are you going to get that food, and where are you going to get it from, and all of those things. So, it's so funny, yeah. One time I was in Texas, Amanda, right, and I and I bike by this little cafe that's a barbecue restaurant on the side of the road. And I get about like a quarter mile past it. And I go, oh my God, how can I pass that thing? I turn around <laughs> and I go in, buy clothes and all. And I load, they sell it by the pound. I load this plate of food, like big brisket and chicken and mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese and you name it, right? <laughs> and I eat the thing in about 15, 20 minutes. And I get on my bike and I start going. And about two miles down the road, is this is this gas station and on there it says the best pies in the world and i went oh my god i'm starving i'm gonna stop in and get some pies and i ate two pies and i went oh my goodness like like you, you that's the one benefit of burning that many calories is you don't have to worry about what you're gonna eat yeah yeah did you <laughs> did you eat on the bike at all or did you always stop to take in your meals 90 percent was eating on the bike yeah. 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 Or, you know, except for when I was done for the day. Yeah. But, but yeah, during the day, I didn't stop that often to eat because I had to get, I had to keep going. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So that's yeah. a feat in itself, actually eating while you're riding. It's, it is. Yeah. Cause you don't, I think you don't really feel like it sometimes, but you know, you need the calories. So you have to yeah. just force yourself. Especially the heat and being yeah. tired. And I was mostly on a, a very, very, very busy highways and, was a little treacherous so yep. um be, you know with one hand and you know yeah. drifting while i'm eating it was it was really hectic it was yeah. really really hectic you have to keep your wits about you i think yeah yeah throughout the journey you did rely on support from your wife erin and uh -huh. some friends so let's talk about the logistics of that so how did you know where to meet um what where she would meet you what point where you, I mean, I know you'd planned the route, but did you ring her and say where you were, or did she bring you food? Like, how did how did she fit into your your journey? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, one of the lessons that I that that you learn in endurance sport is, let's say you're in the middle of an Ironman and you're just feeling just horrible, right? <laughs> and you figure out that there is an aid station up there, so if you make it to the aid station, you get your help. But you could have used the help you know, 20 K back, yeah. but there wasn't help there. So you had to find the help. So it's really weird. I kept running into this strange dynamic that when I needed help, somebody was there. And if nobody was there, I had to figure out a way to not need help. Right. So it was really weird. It was a weird dance like that, but basically she would put in maybe three times the distance each day that I did, because I would start in the morning Right. She would follow me a couple hours later, check on me to make sure I was yeah. okay, go a couple hours ahead of time, grab some food or some more liquids, drive them back mm -hmm. to me, check on me, make sure I was okay. Then she'd drive, you know, five, six, seven hours ahead of me onto the to, to the hotel, check into the hotel, do some work, do some social media, whatever, then drive back to make sure I was okay. It was this, you know, so I never was alone. I had about a third of the days I was fully on my own. Yeah. But no, the days that I weren't on my own, I was probably never more than like three or four or five hours alone. 
Yeah, no, that's so important, isn't it? And I think that's uh, something that, you know, people really need to understand to undertake something as epic as what you did. You do, you do need that support in place and it needs to be, I imagine, pretty well planned. Yeah, it was a, a planning um, exercise for sure. Very, yeah. very legit. I had to give the route every day. I had to have a alternative in case some, some something was closed or if there was weather or something like that. Um, and there was there were some times when it was not it was it didn't work out the way we planned. But I I put hundreds and hundreds of hours into planning it properly. Yeah, just I'm sure you know because there's a lot that could go wrong, and I don't want to be in the middle of Texas and be lost without water and food and anybody to talk to. Oh you know? yeah. Look, honestly, I mean, it, it, it's potentially quite a dangerous thing to do if it wasn't well planned, for sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, especially with the heat. I, I took yeah. off at a time of the year when it was really, really hot. And a uh, couple of times, you know, I had lost a lot of weight. Yeah. You know, I'm talking four or five kilos a day uh, and and sometimes even more during the day and because of that, because of the sweat. Yeah. And, uh, and it, that could be dangerous. Yeah, the risk of dehydration is obviously yeah. ever present. Mm -hmm. mm. So, when you completed the ride, how long did it take for your body to recover? I have no embarrassment over this. It took me almost a year. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear yeah. that. You you absolutely destroyed yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't do the kind of, you know, like when people do something like they climb Mount Everest or they climb the seven peaks or they mm. do something like that, there's real severe physiological issues that happen to you yeah. that take a while to recoup from. Mine was just a self-inflicted fatigue. And I was, you know how like if anybody out there has run a marathon or a half marathon, you run it really hard. And like the next day when you're walking up the stairs, as soon as you get up the stairs, the burn that, yes. that is in your legs, like, you know, for, for 10 or 15 seconds, as soon as you finish climbing, the, the, I had that probably the last third of the bike all day, every day where wow. I just had that constant burn that I just couldn't get rid of. Uh, and, and it was, it was maddening. So it took me about a year to recoup where I wasn't, you know, really tired. Did you, um, in that year of recovery, did you get on your bike or ah. were you very sick of your bike by then? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a few weeks before I got on my bike again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I did not want, I, I was not happy. I was not unhappy to see the bike yeah. uh, sit, sitting there collecting a little bit of dust. I bet, I bet. So, <laughs> So, David, let's talk about the book. Yeah. People might be wondering at this point, like, why, why did he do this crazy thing? Why did David ride across the state? So the purpose of the book was to fundraise for cancer research and care in memory of your sister, June. Mm -hmm. And it was also to start a conversation, I believe, about the full spectrum of emotions that come with cancer. And you say that no one talks about the full spectrum of emotions. So, so why do you think that is, in in your opinion? Um, well, I was struck by it um, when I first kind of made this realization by observing people when I was doing a, a fundraiser, mm. and I'm like, boy, they sure are good about talking about the tasks related to their cancer. Yeah. Do you know, like, how do I put together a notebook to, to handle all the paperwork? Where, where do I, um, uh, how do I navigate the healthcare system? How do I go about finding the right doctor? How do I get my kids watch while I'm in chemo? Those type of things are good at. Mm. 
the practical things. Yes. Um, that, oh, hey, can I drop a casserole off at your doorstep? Yeah. You know, can they run any errands for you? Those type of things they were good at. But what most people weren't well equipped to deal with is have open, frank, kind of authentic conversations about the emotions of it. Yeah. Not just the people going through cancer, but caregivers, doctors, loved ones, survivors, friends. You know, what do you say to someone who's going through something difficult like that? And 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 I saw this recurring theme that that the that the emotional facets of the cancer experience were best dealt with internally, if at all. Very right. quietly, very self-isolated. Um, it it just who who wants to sit down with somebody and and say, oh, so yeah, I know that the doctor said that it's stage four cancer. Have you thought about the fact that you could die? How does that feel? You know, I mean, yeah, it's not easy for us to have those conversations. No, it's not. And I think also it's 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 difficult because I always feel like in those situations you want the person going through it to bring it up. Like if they're not in the mood to talk about it, you don't want to sort of force it. But I don't know. It's very tricky, isn't it? Because you. Well, what do you think? True, but then again, Amanda, what if that person is sitting there going, "The last thing I want to do is burden Amanda." But God, I wish you would ask me a question because yeah. I'm dying to talk to someone. We just don't know. We don't. And know. it's so hard because you don't want to say anything wrong. You don't want to make them feel comfortable. You don't want to shame them. You, you know, people don't want to make you feel guilty. They don't want to burden you. There's a million reasons why, but it's much easier to avoid the conversation yeah. and to have the conversation for a lot of reasons. And I really wanted to dive into that and really start to come up, not not, not with a, a, a prescription. I'm not going to write a prescription and tell you here's the answers. Mm -hmm. But basically, I, what I wanted to do was to, um, to show through storytelling of real life people not just people that had cancer, but loved ones, survivors, doctors, yeah. whatever, yeah. what they had gone through, what allowed them to or prevented them from having these deep conversations and navigating the emotional side inside and also with their loved ones and friends so that we can maybe go, oh, okay, that'll give me some insight. Maybe I, I can learn from that. Yeah, and also through reading your the stories in your book, I think it might help people work out what questions to ask mm -hmm. you know like ways to navigate the tricky questions because as you say there are a million reasons to avoid um, those emotions but I guess if we can allow those conversations to happen it might bring relief or at okay. least at the very least make make someone know how loved they are that we care yeah so you you had a friend that passed away uh, many mm -hmm. years ago right so yeah. I don't know what's worse. Is it worse for you to keep on living and wonder, ah, why didn't I get a little bit deeper? Why didn't I ask the questions? Why didn't I give them a safe space to talk about the emotional side of it? Is that worse? Or is it worse that that person before they died said, oh man, I never really got to have these deep conversations mm -hmm. about the emotional side. And I wish I, I would have been able to get somebody on my same level to talk to me about these things. They're both equally as bad. Yeah. Yeah, we I don't did. know too. Yeah, I, I, maybe you did, and I'm not trying to assume that you did. Oh no, no, I know you're not. Yeah. But we did have those conversations um, because I've known I had known her for such a long time. We were very mm. comfortable with each other, but sometimes 
she didn't want to have those conversations. And I remember for a while um, I'd go and visit her and she'd say, oh, you know, what have you been doing? And I'd say, oh, nothing, because I didn't want to make her feel like she'd been missing out. And then eventually yeah. she said to me, actually, I want to know. I want to hear what's going on. And um, so I'd made all these false assumptions of trying to, you know, protect her. But she's very, she was a very open and honest person. So she said to me, no, tell me, I want to know. So she was very good at that. She was very good at letting you know where the boundaries were in a conversation. So we did have some great conversations. That doesn't always happen. And that I have to say that was mainly credit to her. Yeah. And most people don't um, know how to have those hard conversations mm. because first of all, um, you know, from your standpoint, I, I can understand why you might be hesitant. Right. And are you going to, it's not so easy to ask. It's easy just to assume that you're doing the right thing because you have the right intention, but you just don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. And I love it that she was able to say, yeah, please tell me because um, yeah, it's much easier to not say anything. And isn't it easier? Like if you got a promotion at work or you were so proud about something that happened with one of your kids to not tell her because you don't want to feel guilty. Like, yeah. Oh my God, what's she going through? I don't want to burden her you know, make her feel, think harder about what she's missing out on. Yeah, so I'm just going to not say anything. It's, it's totally understandable, but how, you know, the tiniest little silver lining is you probably know that if you ever had to go through that horrible experience again, that you would know if, if the next friend or the next person isn't as open as she was, then you might be able to push the conversation a little bit because you know that that other person not talking might be thinking, I really want to talk. I really, I really want to, but I'm afraid to ask. And you might then push them. Hey, is it okay if I talk to you about this stuff? Yeah. Right? Because you have that experience. Well, one of the risks I think is it all becomes very inauthentic because, you know, you can each be thinking, oh, I don't want to upset the other one. So anyway, mm -hmm. and that's what your, that's what your book's shining a light on, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what are some of the standout lessons then from your project? Oh my gosh, there's a ton. <laughs> I'm of sure them. there are. <laughs> you know, each story had lessons for me. Each, each one did. And, you know, I talked to 15 people, like I said, well, I talked to more than 15, mm -hmm. but 15 made the book and they're all inspiring stories. They're all have some amount of optimism and forward thinking, you know, positive uh, spin on the human condition, even if some of the stories are kind of tragic, but each one has lessons to learn and they stick with me. Um, and, and, and almost on a daily basis, I'm, I'm, it's already permeated into, into my thoughts. And I think some of those are the harder ones are um, uh, that you, we just don't know what people are going through or what they have gone through. And, and it's easy to say that it's easy to mm. say, oh, you know, so I'm sure they had it rough or I'm sure whatever. You just don't know. I mean, you, you don't know. I was recently talking to someone who is a very successful um, doctor, uh, very accomplished in the community, wonderful uh, family. And one of the most grounded, decent, like n n I would think non-traumatized people mm. ever. And she opened up and told me a story of her childhood that was the most horrible, traumatic, unbelievable thing I could imagine. 
and I won't get into the details, but some people at in 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 the community at a property that her family owned had got murdered. And as a kid, her dad made them go clean up the mess. Oh, goodness. Like the, the autopsy, you know, the, the coroner came and cleaned up the bodies, but it was their property and they had to clean oh. it. And she, as a little girl, as a little girl, had to do some, I mean, like, like could you imagine how traumatic that must have been? You couldn't make any sense of the not. And, and, I, and I was, when she told me this, I was blown away. I said, oh my yeah. God. And she goes, are you kidding me? I, I carry that with me every day. And I, I go, I wouldn't have known. Right? You, yeah. never, you never know what people are going through or what they have gone yeah, through. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that, um, I think that also, that comes with age, but also for me doing this podcast, one thing that fascinates me no end is that absolutely everybody has a story, you know? Mm -hmm. And as you say, you can never make assumptions. You, you can't. And that's why it's really important. You know, some of the other lessons, right, are when you're talking to people that are going through trauma, don't make it about you. It's mm -hmm. their life. It's not your life. And their life, their trauma does not involve you. It involves them. Yeah. So don't make it about you. Number two is don't give it at least. Don't say, well, yeah. you know, I know that that uh, you, you, you know, you broke your leg, but it, but at least you're alive. Or, oh, I know that you have cancer, but uh, at least you're, at least your kids are out of the house. I mean, what, like, don't at least, right? Yeah, because they're, advice. you can't, you, you can't um, understand the trauma that they're going through. I sit on the board of a young adult, uh, uh, adolescent and young adult, a cancer organization, and they have this motto that says, we don't judge your cancer. In other words, it doesn't matter if it's a little if it's big, if it's stage zero, if it's stage four, yeah. if 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 you're terminal or if you're just potentially one day going to have a malignant tumor and you don't today, mm -hmm. we don't we don't care. It's all equally as traumatic. It's all equally as brutal. It all equally needs to be dealt with on many, many levels. And we don't judge because we don't I don't know what you've gone through Absolutely. or what you're going through. And it's it's a very humbling thing because. We, we want to sometimes know that, but I don't think we, you, you do, the longer you live, understand that, especially if you're open to talking to people in an authentic way, but really that's, that's a, that's a big deal. And it's something um, that I like to keep as often as I can. I like to yeah. keep in the front of my mind that, you know, I really don't know what people have gone through or what they're dealing yeah. with. No, I really like that. Don't at least, because mm -hmm. I think people might do that because they're trying to make the other person feel better, but it probably has the opposite effect. Yeah. yeah. And think about it. I mean, I'm using dumb examples. You know, you lost your father. Well, at least you still have one parent alive. I lost both of mine. And it's like, no, don't say at least because it's not yeah. about you and it's not about your parents. And it's not, no, at least maybe that person that was left behind, maybe the parent that was left behind is a horrible human yeah. being. And maybe the, the only protector was the one that died. You don't know anything, right? Yeah, you don't, absolutely. you don't know. And so I, I, I really have removed in the cases of trauma, at least from my vocabulary, I've removed that. So as you've alluded to, David, you told the story of 15 people and mm -hmm. you visited a number of those on your bike ride and mm -hmm. they were either cancer sufferers, carers, doctors, families. How did you choose the participants for your book? Mm. Yeah, so... 
we chose each other, I guess, um, because uh, I approached them or vice versa when we were both ready to go deep. Um, you know, you can't just sit down with a stranger and say, yeah. okay, tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. Let's go. And, and you know, let, okay, clock's ticking. So uh, it was part of that, but I, I cold called, you know, I just got on the phone and called hospitals and cancer centers. I called friends. I asked them to find me uh, people. And what I was looking for is if you can picture in your head a, a wheel mm -hmm. with a ton of different spokes and each sector was a different age, a different type of cancer, uh, a different perspective, you know, caregiver, loved one, survivor, whatever, excuse me, a different emotional response, different traumas that they had had in their lives. I wanted to cover the full spectrum of the human experience. So what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to tell 15 stories of, you know, old men with prostate cancer. Yeah. And I didn't want to tell 15 stories of young, uh, young adults with fertility issues um, caused by uh, a lack of, 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 of attention on their fertility issues. Um, uh, I wanted to hit everything. And so um, but by that, I just chose people that were, that could fit in as many sec sections of the pie as possible. And also, but most importantly, Amanda, that we're willing to sit down and be honest and true and, and bear it all. Yeah. So that was my next question, really. How did you achieve that? Because for someone to open up to you, obviously there had to be a level of trust. Mm -hmm. So how did you get to that point? Assuming you were talking to people who in the first instance you didn't know them so how did that evolve well i mean you're a parent and you know that um in order to have trust somebody needs to be safe and if, if your child's safe then then they'll trust you and you you know that that's number one so i feel like um they made it safe for me to ask questions without a filter or without feeling like I was going somewhere where I shouldn't go. I, I never one time, never one time did anybody say to me, uh, yeah, you can't ask me that. Right. Because if they had, then, then we weren't, we weren't aligned with what the goals of the project was. So, and I made it safe for them mm -hmm. to say, look, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to, to, to make an assessment of you. And nobody's, nobody's trying to, to, uh, to, to make you one dimensional. All we're trying to do is get insight into you so that we can learn what people want to know, even though they'll never know you, they want the true authentic story so that they can know they could have one little two belt to their two belt. They could have one, one little, ah, that's what I'm going to do if I ever come into it. And we can't do that. If we fake it, we got to be real. And so I made it safe for them to, to talk to me. And then, um, yeah, I asked a lot of hard questions. <laughs> Once you'd, published the book did you get some feedback from the participants like what did they think about their stories yeah well because uh only two of the stories are anonymous the other 13 are absolutely not anonymous mm. um i actually had to get their approval before i i published the book because i needed to make sure that they they were going to be okay with the stories and out of the 13 um uh, I'd say half of them, six or seven, um, didn't change a word. They thought it was perfect. And half of them said, no, you need to change this little thing or change that little thing. You got this wrong. You got that wrong. And this is important to me or whatever. Um, not one person uh, said, 
in fact, the two people that went anonymous only went anonymous because the pain that the kids would have felt uh, having relived those things, yeah. um, they, they wanted to protect their kids from, from further scrutiny or having to relive the emotional side of losing a parent. Um, so, um, so even they were okay with the stories. They just asked if we could make it anonymous, but, um, I captured, I talked to people for a long time, Amanda, yeah. like, like a year and a half, two years plus. Um, and I felt like I really wasn't going to write anything that wasn't accurate, authentic, real, yeah. true. And when it came down to it, 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 it pretty much, we were, we were pretty much aligned by the time yeah. the stories came out. Oh, that's amazing. It's an incredible book to read. And you, as you say, you've picked an array of people from carers, patients, mm -hmm. doctors. Um, I, there were there were some standouts to me. Yeah. Uh, my some of my well, in quotes, favourites <laughs> uh, in terms of the stories. Yeah. I really liked Bobby. I think he was oh, the first first one. That's who, why I led with Bobby because yeah. his story is both. Uh, tragic and so inspirational. Yeah, he just, the way I, when I was reading that story, he, it was very inspirational. His wife died of breast cancer and they were, they were deeply in love, that was clear. But he just seemed like the kind of guy that you would like to have, uh, you know, have lunch with, have a chat with. He, he was just such a, he came across to me as a really warm and open guy. Which, which is surprising because when you, when I first looked at him, I went, wow, man, that's a tough yeah. dude. I'm never going to crack that egg. And then he told me his story really in a quick fashion. And I said, oh man, we gotta, we gotta bust this apart. Are you okay with that? Every single time I talked to him, he was so nice and so yeah. frank and so grounded. And basically um, his story for those that, that haven't read the book, of course. Um, so he meets Brandy. Um, uh, shortly after they meet, uh, she gets breast cancer. They beat it. They get ready to get married. The breast cancer comes back, but they hold off on treatment until, until they get back from the wedding and honeymoon. And then in short order, um, it's just, it's too aggressive. And, mm. and, um, it's, it's prior to understanding the BRCA gene and that type of stuff. And, and she's gone very quick, but his story really is about how she prepared him to go on without her yeah, she and was made amazing. him, yeah, made him his best self and gave him the freedom to move past this experience. And he actually learned how to love again. He found yeah. somebody from his past and, and he fell in love and they're still married today and they're, they're very happily married. And they, they, they remember Brandy very openly. And he said something to me that was just so touching. And when I think about it, 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 it really is um, uh, amazing how somebody could have this kind of attitude um, and it's really permeated in, into my psyche because I think, wow, man, if that's the way Bobby thinks about life, then, then I'm going to, I'm going to uh, take a bite of that because he said to me one day, he said, Amanda, he goes, you know, he says, uh, yeah, if Brandy were here, we would have kids because he didn't have any kids. Mm. He said, we'd have kids. We'd be so happily married. There's no doubt in my mind that it would just be the perfect life. He goes, but that didn't happen. She died. And he goes, I'm married now. And my wife is the greatest thing in the world. I'm as happy as I could be. And my life is absolutely perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. Now, 
if it worked out a different way, it would have, it would have been a different situation, but I find myself here today and I literally wouldn't change a thing. I'm as happy as any man could ever be. And I'm just like, wow, if you could lose, lose the, yeah, if you could lose the first person that ever came into your life that made you the best you, and you were that much in love with that person and lost that person and still felt like your best days were ahead of you. I mean, how can you not, how can you not admire that? It's it's a hopeful story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That yeah. life life can go on and you can find happiness again even after tragedy. Yeah, I, hard to tell somebody that, right? Oh, of course, because if, if 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 you were going to tell me that, I might I might punch you in the head, right? Yeah. Because I don't want to hear that. But but um, but to see how somebody lived it, that's very touching to me. The, one of the other stories I love because I found it so fascinating was Joshua. I mean, he, his backstory is, is tragic. His um, mother suicided, I believe, and then his mm-hmm. father, uh, his birth, well, his natural father, um, whom he didn't know about, claimed custody of him and took him to Puerto Rico. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah, and correct. I mean, what a tumultuous childhood. I, I just kept oh. imagining this poor young kid who's suddenly plucked from his life into a a different family, which is actually his natural family, but he didn't know them. I mean, how do you process that? It, it's incredible. I don't know. And, mm-hmm. and, and, um, look, I, when I first started talking to Joshua and he's a very good friend, by the way, he and I are very close and, uh, and I'm very lucky to, ha- to have him as a friend. I didn't know him before I met before I did the book, I, I, somebody referred me to him halfway across the country and we were strangers when we started talking, we're good friends. And I just was sitting there going, yeah, you know, he left out the whole, he was snatched by his natural family and moved to Puerto Rico. And he left out the whole, um, uh, seeing his mom commit suicide thing. He had told me, that his big problem was he was so macho and didn't want to accept help. And the first time that he accepted help was from his girlfriend who he kind of opened the door a little yeah, bit, let her yeah. know what was going on, that he's had to go into surgery. It's just been um, diagnosed with a big sarcoma in his stomach, young guy, you know, macho, uh, you know, Latino guy. He didn't want to ask for help, but he finally opened up to her. And she literally said to him, this is not my life. I'm out of here. Yeah, like you're on your own, was, dude. That was heartbreaking to read. Heartbreaking. Oh. And 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 I'm thinking to myself, I, yeah, but you know what? I I can kind of understand that. Like 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 I could I could get I could sympathize with her. Pretty crappy thing to do, but I could sympathize with her. I said, why did it affect you that much? And he talked around it for a long time, and then finally he told me the rest of the story of wow. his childhood, and I went, oh my goodness, no wonder you don't want to trust anybody. No wonder you feel abandoned at every little or not going to allow yourself to be vulnerable. I get it. Now I get it. And his story about how he learned how to be vulnerable again and how he learned how to accept help and to realize that not everybody was going to abandon him is a really wonderful, wonderful story. That's a a perfect illustration of what we were talking about earlier, you just don't know what people are dealing with in their lives, do you? Because if you first met Joshua, he was, as you say, this kind of macho guy and you would have had no clue. And even with you, he took a while to open mm-hmm. up in terms of his background. So 
Yes, we yeah. can never make I, assumptions. What I could do, yeah, what I could do is I could picture, because he said he barely took a day off of work. And this was a guy who was not supposed to survive after his sarcoma. I mean, it was very, 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 there's a documentary, a, sh- a short, a documentary short made on him from the from the cancer center that took mm-hmm. care of him, where the main uh, uh, surgical oncologist said, yeah, Joshua should not be here today. He had no business living. And I could, but I could see him. I could actually see him because I can picture this in my life. Somebody that I kind of know going through something and I'm not quite sure what it is because they haven't told me. I don't know him well enough to ask. And they're like, and I'm like, hey, buddy, you need anything? And he goes, no, I'm fine. Right. I could totally see that happening. And me going, all right, the guy's fine. Or me going, well, whatever. The guy's kind of a jerk. All right. I offered my help. He doesn't want it. Fine. Whatever. And I could just see that. I could picture in that my, my mind that happening. But when you know what's really behind it, you maybe got to really rethink like next time you offer somebody help and they say no, maybe you got to realize there could be a lot more. Maybe they just don't want mm-hmm. your help, but there might possibly be a lot more behind. And, and I've learned to ask questions because of Joshua's story. I've learned to ask questions like when you say you don't need help. Is it because you think I don't really want to help you or is it because you don't want to ask me for the help or is it because you really don't want the help? I mean, which is fine. It's your life, whatever you want, but I just need to let you know I'm here. So if you, if you want help, I'm definitely following through. Yeah. If there's anything I can do, just please let me know which way are we going here? You know? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. So you're sort of examining the reasons behind the response. Right. So one of the things that, or the themes that really stood out to me was the lack of control that cancer brings into people's lives. So most of us like to plan our lives. We like to set goals. We, and we think we've got some kind of control over, over the outcomes, but a cancer diagnosis can absolutely shatter this. So how did you find that people were able to deal with that uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis? It's tough, and I'm not positive I have the answer that could mm. be applied um, universally to that yeah, question. Sure. It's a great question. Um, and, and I think I, I, I don't know how to answer that because I've never been through having cancer myself. I'm like, I, I saw my sister die of cancer, but, and certainly, you know, we, we have all seen friends and family um, be affected by or be taken by cancer. But, but I think that, uh, I, I think it is that I, when you ask that question, my first thought is they're living their lives. Let them deal with it the way they want to deal with it. And I don't know that we can make sense of it, but mm-hmm. maybe they can. I, I, don't, I Right. Or maybe mm-hmm. we can make sense of it and they can't. So I don't know how I, I, I don't know how I might answer that question for myself. Yeah. But what I try not to do is answer that question when somebody else is going through it, I try not to assume that they can or cannot wrap their brain around it, yeah, that sure. they're okay with it or that they're not okay with it. Take Patricia, right? This is a woman that had the, the cancer five different times. Yeah, and every time she had five, five, each of the five different cancers, she just went about a business. Like it was like no big deal to her. Yeah. I mean, probably it was a big deal, but it wasn't anywhere as big a deal as some of the other things she had been through in her life. And she handled it workmanlike. I got cancer. Let me learn what I need to do. Let me go about my treatment. Let me, let me, let me talk to the doctors from an educated standpoint. And she just went businesslike about it. Cause she said, I've never been sick a day in my life. I, I have cancer, but I've never been sick. Right. And so it was no big deal to her. And I think to myself, ah, 
if I had one mild diagnosis, okay, I'd be a total freaking wreck. How would I even know how to deal with it? Right. So it's a great, great, great question. It really could make you think hard because you don't know until you're in that position, but I know for sure that you can't answer the question for somebody else. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So David, if someone wants to support, um, cycle for lives the initiative what's the best way they can do that <laughs> well buy the book leave buy a review mm. you know 100 percent of the proceeds from the book are going to the cancer organizations that were chosen by the book participants so those are listed in the book they're listed on my website um it's it's really famous cancer centers and some hospitals here in the in the states and they're all doing great work. They're all nonprofits and doing great work in the cancer care and wellness communities and support communities. So um, not a lot of money in books, but you know, what the heck, uh, at least whatever comes in goes out to them. So, yeah. so that's good. Um, and yeah, any, any information people want to find, they can find it on the website and, you know, we're a nonprofit organization, uh, cycle alive. So, you know, a- anything they, they can do. And I'd say the most important thing is just uh just try to learn how to be there better for the people that care about you. You know, yeah. that's that's a great way to pay it forward. Yeah, pay it forward. I love that. And I'll put links to all of that, obviously, in the show notes. I think it's getting to the time that we wrap this up, even though I'd, I could speak to you for hours. But Let's <laughs> do it. Got things to do. <laughs> um, so clearly you're the kind of person who sets themselves big goals. Yeah. Um, what's next? Hi. Well, let's see. I've got, uh, uh, I'm going to be doing the Hawaii Ironman World Championships oh, next year. Fantastic. So I'm doing that. I got a half Ironman coming up this summer. I just literally, there's a, there's a cancer support community in Texas that's doing a 24 hour bike ride fundraiser. And I just, before we got on here, confirmed with the director that I'll, that I'll do the 24 hours. So I'm going to go Brilliant. do a 24 hour solo bike ride and, in texas and in a couple of months and yeah i'm just going to keep doing those things keep writing books and keep talking to great people like you oh thank you so the 24-hour bike ride will be a piece of cake for you (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about that how many half ironmans have you done uh only two and i've got another one in november so that'll be a piece that'll be a piece of cake right no (laughs) it never is is it (laughs) no And so one of the final questions I like to ask all my guests is if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Two things people could do to improve their well-being. Are we talking physical, emotional? Oh, look at you having the book. Physical or emotional? Any, whatever. Okay. Be anything. I'll give you one emotional and one physical. So the physical thing you could do to improve your well-being is be honest. Go stand in front of the mirror and have an, a, take an honest assessment of yourself and say, here's where I'm at today. And then think like, where do I want to be? And you're not where you want to be. I guarantee you, even I'm not, you're not, and nobody's where they want to be, yeah. but take an honest assessment and go, okay, forgive yourself just for your mind. Go, I'm just here where I'm at today. Forget about my life's too busy or uh, whatever. Or I'm going to feel guilty or just let it all go. Let all, and just, just go start leaning into who you want to be. And for me, physically, that is a simple math of calories in, calories out, right? Just eat less than you burn. It's hard to do. It's hard. We can always justify, oh, I had a stressful day. I'll have another cookie or whatever. 
it's all good. Don't worry about it. But just where you're at today and where you want to go, just eat less calories than you burn. It's very, very simple. Or 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 ride for forty five days. Or ride across, for forty five across, <laughs> across across. Don't the be country. stupid like that. <laughs> I, I no. I say on the emotional side. Um, I know this is a little um, a little uh, preachy, but I hope it doesn't come off that way. But um, I learned a long time ago. Um, first doing endurance athletics, and I wrote about it in another book. Yeah. This idea of 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 when you reach your limit. When you know it's the farthest you can go, you're completely depleted, you hit the wall, you're done, you're miserable, and I don't care what it is in life, but you've hit that wall, or you're done. I just developed this little mantra that said, take one more step. Because if you if you can take one more step, you definitely learn something new about yourself. You hit virgin territory. You didn't know what you were made of because you had never been there before. You've gone one step further than the farthest you can go. You've, you've gone a little bit harder than the hardest you could go. How incredible is that? And, and if you can take one step, you're going to go, Oh shoot, I just learned something. Even if that means you, you learned, you got to quit, but you, at least you learned something. And if you take another step, you learn something more and more. And so I love this idea that when things get hard and you're at your limit, just go a little bit more because it's not that you're accomplishing more. It's just, you're learning something more. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. It's a little easier to take one more step than one more turn of the wheels because the bike could fall over. You could always (laughs) slow your steps down if you're running, right? So it's a little bit easier said than done. But even even at work, even with relationships, even with uh, whatever that comes along, if I'm at my limit, I go, okay, can you take one more step? Can you go a little bit further just to learn? Well, you're you're the living embodiment of that, aren't you? (laughs) With, (laughs) With some of the amazing things you've done. And David, if someone wants to follow you um, or look at your uh, website, and what's the mm-hmm. best way for them to do that? Well, best way is cycleoflives.org. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that works in Australia, but I think it should. Yeah, um, I think it cycleoflives.org. It's a it's it's my website. It talks mm-hmm. about all the podcasts and the talks I'm doing and all that fun stuff, and talks about the books and everything else. And then um, I'm on social media. I'm not terribly active on social media. But I'm on social media. It's pretty fun. I post post some fun stuff. So, um, yeah, they could do that. And I think the most important thing is, as you and I were connected, kind of like a third person connection. Um, anybody that ever reaches out, I'm always I'm always loving to send send a note back or engage in a conversation or whatever. Um, so if any if this any of this touches anyone, you might, my my emails on my on my website. Yep. Contact me and and we'll talk one on one. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And David, thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And as I said, cycle of lives. Sorry, I think I've been calling it cycle for lives. It's cycle of lives. That's okay. Is a wonderful read. It's um, it's emotional. It's fascinating. It's interesting. And you really get to delve into the, the lives of these 15 people that David's um, spoken about or spoken with in the book so i highly recommend it so thank ne- you so time, much thank you and next time i talk to bobby i'll tell him he has another fan in australia oh yes definitely <laughs> please do <laughs> yeah and right, joshua in fact and joshua. There, there was there were lots of them that i i love but those two in particular stood out to me 
people are people are awesome and keep doing what you're doing because you get to meet all these great people yeah i do i do love that so anyway have an excellent rest of your day thank you again yeah thank you you too bye-bye bye Gosh, I enjoyed that conversation. That was David Richman, author of Cycle of Lives. So thank you very much for listening today. And I do hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. And I'm always so grateful for that. Please follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast and check out my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com. If you want to contact me with any suggestions or simply to say hello, you can DM me via Instagram or you can contact me via the contacts page on my website. I'd really love to hear from you. This podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.